Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash APPS. Well, it has been scorching out there uh, nationwide, I think. We're in the middle of a little bit of a heat wave in August here. It's it's kind of the it's kind of the wet season, I joke, that if you're uh, if you're in the south or the west, you kind of walk from your car into the hospital or you walk, you know, from the back spot in the parking lot into like a store or something and you feel like you uh you like need to change your shirt, right? It's getting a little damp in there, getting a little wet. So, what's kind of better than cooling off with our topic today? of targeted temperature management with uh, our special special guest, uh, Dr. Scott Benkin. Uh, So Dr. Benkin is the Director of Clinical Research for the Department of Surgery at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and a clinical pharmacist in the MICU at the University of Illinois Hospital and Health Sciences System in Chicago, Illinois, and is a clinical associate professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago College of Pharmacy. He received his PharmD degree from the University of Cincinnati, James L. Winkle College of Pharmacy in Cincinnati, Ohio. Thereafter, Scott completed residencies in pharmacy practice and critical care at the University of Illinois Hospital and Health Sciences System. Dr. Benkin's clinical and research interests involve the optimization of medication therapy in critically ill and surgical patients, as well as the exploration of medication regimen in unique patient subsets. He enjoys collaborative research endeavors as well as experiential teaching. He especially appreciates didactic classroom opportunities throughout the pharmacy curriculum. Now, Dr. Benkin is board certified in pharmacotherapy with added qualifications in cardiology and a fellow in the American College of Critical Care Medicine. Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Well, I'm great. Um, thanks so much for having me. It's just uh, it's a privilege to be here and uh, I'm honored to be a part of this uh, podcast. Well, thanks so much for joining. And not only are you are you just doing so much in your in your day to day job, but um, you're also the program chair for the sixth that is the number six sixth annual Chicagoland Critical Care Conference or C four twenty twenty one, and that's taking place this Saturday, Saturday August twenty eighth, from nine a.m. to four p.m. Eastern time. So, Scott, let us know kind of what what can we expect from this year's conference, or maybe if there are some people who this is their first time hearing about this, kind of talk a little bit about it. Yeah, um, absolutely. I'd love to. So C4 um, was um, probably something that many of us in the critical care space had been doing for a long time, right? It actually started in a conference room in a hospital with a bunch of critical care pharmacy colleagues um, getting together with our residents and our fellows. And what we wanted to do at that point was instead of just talking about, you know, what is sepsis or what is sedation is to really start talking about things that are on the edge. Um, what's coming next, what are the novel therapies, what are the future areas of clinical practice and research. And what we found by, by doing that, we were able to you know, generate a bunch of research ideas and really push our practice forward. And 
And there's a lot of interest in it. Um, we, we started getting interest from our medicine colleagues, from our nurse practitioner staff. And we're like, wait a minute, like, this, this, there's something here. Let's, let's see if we can do this on a bigger scale. And uh, sure enough, from, from that idea, from those discussions, uh, we started, I can't believe now, uh, six years ago, coming up on our, our sixth annual meeting of the Chicagoland Critical Care Conference. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And I'm not sure if, I mean, just leading a small program, just at your institution, the amount of time and legwork it takes, I can't imagine all the behind the scenes work that you all are doing. And to have this be so successful that this is the sixth time running, I think speaks volumes to, you know, to you as the chair, but also, right, the people that you have working with you as I'm sure this is a a team effort um, to coordinate all of these things. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. I mean, we have an incredible planning committee, um, it, you know, providers uh, from mostly the Chicagoland area, but we have some also national interests there. Um, and these are folks that are, you know, very busy and they're taking their personal time to think about this agenda closely to identify speakers. And then we have an entire continuing education division that is really getting us through accreditation, getting all the, the, the vendors set for this, getting sponsorship. Uh, we're working lots of industry relationships with that. And so it's, it's really, it's such a collaborative effort. And, um, you know, we, we try to, to bring some of the best uh, speakers that we can find and also open opportunities for people that are up and coming. So it's a, it's a little bit of both. And we, we, we love the conference. We love supporting it and promoting it. And, you know, just even talking about it for a few minutes here. I just, you know, thank you for that opportunity. And, you know, I, I think one of the, um, I guess problems that people have with some of the conferences going virtual is it feels like you're still paying in-person prices, right? Like a thousand dollars for a virtual mid-year conference to me seems kind of crazy. And when I look at the price here of $50, I mean, this seems like a steal, like we're talking black Friday deals here. So, you know, everyone's getting CE it's for adults and pediatrics. I saw. So we're really, I mean, from, from birth, you know, from zero to a hundred, we're trying to, you're trying to hit every single person, which I think is awesome. Yeah, we really are. You, you'll like this. We, we, we sent out some blasts in the initial first years of this and, we, we had a, a tagline in there that we covered the gamut of critical care. And uh, my, uh, my neonatal and pediatric uh, colleagues at the university here are like, uh-uh, we're, we're not part of this yet. And then uh, that really led to spurring on a whole pediatric track. And now we have that whole thing filled. And it's, it's amazing. It's just amazing to see how it's evolved over time. And um, it, it's just a really cool thing. And, yeah, we, we try to price it at something that we think is reasonable, right? We're not trying to make money on this. We're trying to break even basically every year and um, just keep moving it forward. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's multidisciplinary. Um, you know, selfishly, I see some, some previous friends of the pod guests, uh, Brian Gilbert, Amy Zerba, who, my gosh, if you don't know Amy now, where have you been hiding recently? Um, so just really awesome names. You're right. A, a really good combination of, of seasoned pharmacists and those who are really kind of up and coming. We could talk about this forever. Now, one thing, our website here, for those who are interested, it's going to be posted on all kind of the promo things for the episode, but it's the c4conference.uic.edu. Let's do it one more time here. So c4conference.uic.edu. Yeah, Scott, what an awesome endeavor. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that this is still continuing and that hopefully we're going to be able to get some uh, some more eyes and ears um, for the sixth annual this year. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that.
Okay. Now let's kind of get to the to our episode and kind of the clinical topic here. Now the episode is called targeted temperature management. That's that's my that's my name. It's kind of what I refer to this to, but I'm sure you and all the listeners have heard many different names, right? Therapeutic hypothermia, cooling, TTM. So maybe it's something cool that I didn't even think of, right? Which is definitely pun intended here. Um, but what is what's the preferred nomenclature? Do we have one? Is it kind of you know whatever? Um, you know, whatever we think in your kind of specific unit? Yeah, I mean, I, I think anything of any derivation of those is, is likely acceptable. Um, I, I'm with you. I kind of prefer to call it targeted temperature management, um, mostly because of some of the, uh, I guess, newer or emerging data that we, we know um, maybe it's just actually normal, you know, normal thermia or mm-hmm. uh, maintaining a certain temperature range that, it doesn't necessarily reach hypothermic uh, thresholds or, or cooling or things like that. So I'm, I'm a big fan of TTM, targeted temperature management, but you will certainly hear all, all the different derivations you mentioned. So I'm sure we could talk an hour or even longer on the actual history of it, but let's, let's give, let's give us a little bit of a history on the use of TTM. Like, you know, when did this start and was there, you know, what was maybe the theory behind maybe starting and using this in the first place? Because if you explain this to someone in medicine, you know, when you when you're explaining this to family members, it's a strange concept sometimes, right, that you're trying to to explain what we're doing to, to patients. Yeah, it certainly is. And I, I found even explaining this you know, to our, our pharmacy students and, and other trainees, the idea that we're intentionally um, changing someone's uh, core temperature is just very odd. But uh, you know, it goes back all the way until, you know, Hippocrates, right? We also, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, and we talk about that in, in medicine and pharmacy. And so, you know, back in, in 450 BC, there were writings of, uh, you know, Hippocrates hacking wounded soldiers with ice to slow bleeding. Now, that's very different than what we're doing now with core temperature regulation and, and changing that. That's really more like, you know, kind of local temperature management. Um, you know, this was propagated into the 1800s um, with battle battle surgeons kind of doing the same thing. Um, and and kind of interestingly, it wasn't until like the 50s where we started, 1950s, where we started to, to see this after cardiac arrest. And it started with uh, some animal studies. Um, and, and really what, we, what they found was by changing that core body temperature, there was some signaling, um, both in overall outcome, but certainly in neurologic recovery. And that's kind of where it started. It, it started in the 1950s and, and looking at these patients and has evolved to something now. And here we are in the, the 2020s and um, using it on, on almost all of our patients that undergo cardiac arrest. Now, there are definitely a few controversies within the realm of TTM. So we'll, we'll put a pin in some of them, but I think probably what I would argue is number one on kind of your list of arguments or controversies would be what is our optimal temperature? Um, You know, 33 degrees versus 36 degrees Celsius. And you even mentioned some might argue that it's neither of those and it is just avoiding hyperthermia or kind of that normothermic group. Um, So, how did we get here? Like, why is there such kind of a disagreement when ultimately, like, at first it was just cooling? Like, how did we get here to these 
disagreements between them. Um, and then, you know, maybe trying to piece in, are there physiologic consequences or things that are occurring that may make us choose one or the other as like a patient specific decision? Yeah. So I think first kind of thinking about how we got here. Um, so some of the, um, first or maybe largest or best well-designed studies that came out were like around 2002. Um, and there are two different studies, uh, two different study groups that looked at out of hospital cardiac arrest. And in that particular study or those particular studies, what they looked at was a temperature range of 32 to 34 degrees. Um, one of the things that we have sort of known for years is that as you deviate away from normal thermia, um, there are a number of physiologic consequences that happen because of that. And so, um, you know, these study investigators that looked at that 32 to 34 range, they were certainly aware of that and they saw those physiologic consequences. Um, but what they also found in those studies was that there was a uh, benefit in terms of neurological re recovery. And then honestly, if you put the two studies together, um, you could see some mortality benefits. Um, Interestingly, there was, you know, the TTM study, which was a comparative study looking at 33 degrees versus 36. And sort of the premise of that study was, you know, the idea of trying to determine if there really is an optimal temperature um, and for avoiding some of the complications that happen as you deviate further and further away from that normal body temperature. And that study found that there really wasn't much of a difference. Um, you know, achieving 36 versus 33 um, as your your goal temperature didn't lead to um, profound changes in outcome. Now, um, there's some, you know, subtleties in that, you know, patients mm -hmm. that were at higher temperatures um, had more deviations into being hyperthermic. Um, and so that's a strong consideration because that seems to be something that we want to avoid at all. Um, and then those, as you get down to 33 degrees, you know, you had more physiologic consequences and those came through in that study. So I think a lot of it was sort of proving what we know, um, that as you deviate further away from normal temperatures, you get more complications. Um, and the closer you stay to normal temperature, you risk having patients develop fevers, which um, have been pretty consistently evaluated or you know, uh, associated with poor outcomes. Yeah, it's kind of incredible some of the things that we... Uh that we need a, a research to kind of, um, you know, finalize or firm up what we, what we kind of already know or, or see. Um, but you mentioned bringing the, the temperature down and like, and like cooling them. So this, this may seem like a, um, like a strange question, but I guess, how do we do that? How are we able to, you know, either actively or passively help get patients safely to their goal temperature because you don't want to we don't want them going 28 27 right that's that could be catastrophic right and it's kind of a long answer i guess or or maybe it's a short answer i don't know it depends but <laughs> if you it really depends on kind of your institution right mm -hmm. so um we are we are a public academic urban center right so so up until a few years ago we had one intravascular cooling device and in our whole institution, and we were packing people with ice bags, right? So, so mm -hmm. we were going old school. We we're going, you know, Hippocrates style here. Um, other places um, might have, you know, more financial ability and have, you know, these devices where they have physicians that are trained in placing them, etc. So it doesn't necessarily, I don't think, um, matter. Now, one of the things we have seen though is that. 
there are some preferences in the devices, and we'll, I don't want to get too much into that, but um, those that actually can do what you are attempting to do. Um, so if you want to decrease the temperature to 33, they can track that and help you with that progress and do so in a way where you actually know what's going on. Those type of devices seem to be preferred compared to others. Um, it's, you know, the whole ice pack, ice pack thing, I mean, it, it works and it gets you there, but at the same time, we don't really know what the core temperature is and how that change is happening. And, and so something that's a little bit more systematic uh, is certainly going to be preferential and that's going to be dependent on your institution. Yeah, I think some places like in the in the beginning, you know, we have ROSC, you know, we're probably going to go down this route, right? Maybe, you know, we've got the head CT, you know, we know that we'll, we'll kind of continue this a lot of times you know they'll do some ice packs or like one of our protocols is to give some chilled fluid up front and then you're right some of those um more active devices that it you know requires the central line and and all of the the bells and whistles that can just take a whole lot of time to set up so those other ones can kind of be temporary while you're getting all your all your bells and whistles in order for the for the bigger guns exactly so do we, are there actual guideline recommendations as to, you know, how to use and incorporate TTM, you know, into, you know, various patient care scenarios? Yeah. I mean, the, you know, advanced cardiac life support guidelines, right. As part of post, um, ice or post, uh, ROSC care, um, now have an entire focus on what happens in that post recovery phase. Um, it's something that's been evolving over the years. It's kind of like the Olympics, right? Every four years, you, you get the Olympics, and every you know five years or so, you get a, a guideline surrounding advanced cardiac life support. And so um, what we've seen is that there has been kind of this stepwise evolution to more and more focus on this specific area. And so, yeah, there are definitely guidelines in terms of you know how quickly you want to try to get these patients cooled as soon as you possibly can. Um, you want to try to maintain it for at least 12 hours and up to 24. That's currently being investigated. And, and so there's a lot of momentum and a lot of trajectory around this. And this is actually part of where we come to understand the complications that, that come with doing this and, you know, the application of the newest literature um, to how we actually practice is incorporating into these guidelines. So is there any... Is there any controversy? Does the, you know, do these guidelines help us delineate maybe like, for example, what temperature? Well, yes and no. Um, so the temperature <laughs> range that we currently have as recommended is between 32 and 36. So, um, yeah, you do have, we do have, uh, I guess, a temperature range that we can target. But at the same time, we have a lot of clinical leeway in terms of what we choose within that. Um, and so, you know, based off of um, even recent publication with the TTM2 trial coming out, right, these guidelines might even shift further. Um, and so, we, again, it's, a, it's an ever-moving target. And as more evidence emerges, I think we uh, see that reflected in the guidelines. So is this the classic, like when an antibiotic recommendation says seven to 14 days and everyone just picks 10 because they don't, or they pick 14, they want to do the longest one. Are we doing a lot of targeting 34 degrees, trying to hit dead in the, in the middle there? <laughs> so interestingly, um, what, what we do at our institution is we kind of have a, a, a decision tree based off of risk factors for complications. 
because as, as we sort of discussed mm-hmm. earlier, as we deviate further away from, from normal temperature, we're going to see more complications. And some of those things can be like coagulopathy. Um, and so if a patient coming in, they have some kind of, you know, either massive bleeding, which might be a total contraindication to doing it, mm-hmm. or some kind of minor bleeding, we might prefer that patient to stay at the higher temperatures. Um, and so, you know, we, we have some clinical variables that help us and support that. Um, now, that decision between the clinical variables and picking 32 to 34 versus 34 to 36 isn't, isn't guided by great evidence. It's more of just <laughs> clinical application of, <laughs> of patients. It's kind of one of those where whatever your, if you feel strongly about 33, you're going to find the data to support that and vice versa. If you feel strongly about 36 or more than normothermia route. Um, right. So you, you kind of had a a perfect lead in here because it's a very timely topic because I would say probably one of the, one of the biggest ICU articles that I can remember in the last few months, um, the TTM two trial, um, was just released in August 21 and, um, kind of the one liner is, is, you know, is looking at goal temperature in out of hospital cardiac arrests. Um, so, you know, kind of give us a brief rundown of, of what this study found. And, and ultimately what everyone's wondering is, is this going to be practice changing? Is this hypothesis generating kind of, where do we go? Where do we go from here with this new big study to add to, you know, some of these landmark articles you've mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I think before even talking about the results, I think one of the things to realize is this study had like 1,900 patients. Uh, so this was actually a huge study um, wow. compared to some of the ones in the past where we're in hundreds um, in terms of numbers. And so there's a, there's a lot of patients that were included in this compared to some of the previous literature, which was great. Um, the you know the study itself was really looking at that that goal of 33 degrees, so probably a range of 32 to 34. And then comparing it to what they call normal thermia or aggressive fever management patients. So they, any, any temperature that was over 37.8, there is active control of that body temperature to make sure that normal thermia was maintained. And I think that that's really important because it wasn't just letting patients do whatever they would do in the unit because <laughs> um, those patients would likely be spiking fevers and having all different kinds of things. So there, there was sort of a more active control arm. And I think, you know, some of the title and, and other things might, might make it out to be, um, you know, the study found basically though, in those two groups, um, of, you know, 1,850 patients or 1,900 patients that there wasn't a difference in terms of mortality outcomes. Um, there was not a difference in terms of neurologic function. They used a modified ranking scale, which is pretty, uh, pretty standard assessment of that. And interestingly, I was just blown away by this. They had like huge success rates in terms of measuring those outcomes. Um, they were somewhere in like the 70 plus range in terms of being able to actually look at outcome data for these patients. Um, so it had great follow-up, huge study, um, kind of well-designed up, up front, which I think allows us to make some maybe more um, you know definitive conclusions about it uh, versus studies that have other limitations surrounding those things. Yeah, I mean, the, the study design here, like the researchers and statisticians and things, I mean, they did a really, really good job. I mean, almost 1,900 patients in this big, in a big ICU trial like this, really outside of sepsis is almost unheard of. Um, I mean, you're not even getting, a lot of the ARDS studies aren't even this big. So, I mean, that's that was the first thing that stood out to me too when I was, when I saw we were approaching 2,000 patients here, like, oh, 
All right. It's a really good sample size of, of uh, patients. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, one of the other things that really stood out to me as well, beyond the fact that there was really no difference in their, their major primary, major secondary outcome, was that they found what we have just been talking about over and over again, that as you deviate further, so the patients that got cooled down to that temperature um, of 33, they started developing more complications. And specifically, one of the ones that stood out to me was um, arrhythmias that result in hemodynamic compromise. Um, you know, I could go on for a while about that specific aspect, but um, having, um, you know, my mother actually had a cardiac arrest, went through target temperature management. And so I went from, you know, being the provider that talks about this to being a patient that's on the receiving end and, and kind of seeing that. And uh, sure enough, as, you know, that temperature started deviating, getting lower and lower, we saw the arrhythmia. Um, we saw, and then as we rewarmed, we started to see the vasodilation, the hemodynamic uh, instability supporting that. So there, there are definitely complications that come with, with shooting lower. And if we can avoid it and keep patients normal thermic, and it's not going to change overall outcomes, that perhaps it might be a preferential way. And I think you, you mentioned as we were going through some of the brief history, kind of the, at least the, the first big study in two, in 2002, the, the Haka study. And one of the big criticisms of it is the, the normothermic group wasn't really normothermic, right? They were having pretty high incidences of fever in the group. So would you say like, were you, was your argument even before this trial came out um, of really trying to aggressively prevent fevers um, versus feeling really strongly about 33 or 36? Or has this kind of changed your your thought process a, about that? Yeah, I think that, I, I mean, it's, it, I don't know if it's changed my thought process, but it certainly supported it. Um, I mean, I remember as a uh, pharmacy resident, you know, reading those studies and um, having that, you know, physician colleagues point out that that, that specific criticism, um, that these patients were, um, you know, developing fevers. And then sure enough, if you look at the literature that's, you know, kind of been since then, even some of that before and then after that study, there's a consistent signal in these patients that if they're going to develop, if they develop fevers afterwards, that is associated um, with poor outcomes. And so I think, you know, it's a little bit hard to say like, you know, this is the one thing that has made that decision for me, but it certainly supported it. And I think now we have some pretty consistent evidence because they actively kept these patients and we're very successful at keeping these patients from not being hypothermic. You know, and they include, right, they included all rhythms. They didn't look at just our shockable rhythms or just our non-shockable, right? You know, there's um, more shockable rhythms in the group, but they have, you know, about a third and two-thirds um, kind of broken out, or maybe it's more like a fourth and, and three-fourths, but either way, still having a kind of subsets of patients there, Um to kind of have a mix more of what we see maybe for the patient coming into the ER directly into your ICU. Yeah. And I think like that's, you know, that proportion of patients in those two classifications of rhythms is very consistent with, with out, out of hospital cardiac arrest data. You know, about three fourths of the time you're going to have patients that have some kind of shockable rhythm and then others uh, are going to be the non-shockable. And we, for those patients, that specific subset, we don't know where, were they previously shockable? And by the time <laughs> someone got there, they're now not a non-shockable rhythm or was that the initial uh, rhythm that was detected? So yeah, it, you know, again, consistent with what we see in some of the out of hospital cardiac arrest and 
you know, a study like this, maybe with the proportion flipped, would be pretty interesting, um, particularly on an inpatient setting. So I think that there's, there are still questions to be answered. Yeah, you mentioned that there's still questions to be answered. I think some of some may refer to them as research opportunities. Um, but what would you say are like some areas of future research within the TTM world that maybe we still need some clarification on, right? Whether it's, you know, we've hinted at a couple of them, but, um, you know, maybe aside from the temperature thing that this TTM2 trial really tried to address in a big systematic way? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, looking at patients uh, in in-hospital settings compared to out-of-hospital settings, um, I think the cardiac arrest situation for many of those patients is a totally different animal um, than what we see in the out-of-hospital setting. Um, and ex- the other explain, thing, explain well, to, to, to some of our listeners, explain, explain why that is, why, you know, learners will ask me this, why is there a difference between like out of hospital and kind of those outcomes versus like in hospital? Yeah. So it's great. I mean, it's a great question and clarification. So the, if you look at the, just the presenting rhythm, that would be the first place that I would start. Um, the presenting rhythm for in hospital cardiac arrest is basically flipped. Um, so you have about two thirds to three fourths of your patients in, in hospital cardiac arrest suffering from um, PEA or asystole compared to the out of hospital. Um, that's important for a couple of reasons, and, and, and mostly, the, in my opinion, that you know the out of hospital cardiac arrest, the shockable rhythms, have something that you can do that has been known to fix the problem, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, using rapid defibrillation coupled with CPR um, can actually terminate the issue that's going on. Um, the presentation of PEA and asystole, unfortunately, is oftentimes due to some underlying cause, um, which takes investigation, time to figure out, and to subsequently fix it. So if you have a patient that's profoundly acidotic with their septic shock, that's not going to be fixed just through the course of CPR. There are other things. There's renal failure. There's dialysis that has to happen. There's lots of other things that are going to influence that patient's outcome. Uh, so that would be the first, I guess, major difference in terms of uh, delineating those those two types. Um, I think the other is just the av- availability of um, resuscitating personnel, mm-hmm. right? If I, I always say, and kind of half jokingly, like if I'm going down, I want to go down in the ICU, right? I, I want everyone to, that's there to be around. I want that crash cart to be ten feet away from me, um, instead of being, you know, a phone call, an ambulance ride. Um, and whatever, or, or relying on bystanders that may or may not feel comfortable with CPR or may or may not even do it. Um, so there's a lot of other variables that go into that, but those are some of the big major ones that I always point out to our trainees. Yeah, I like that you mentioned the kind of CPR because A, all of us in healthcare know the moment that's gone, we're going to start compressions. Whereas the layperson, right, that's like some people probably still think that we're doing the rescue breaths and those things during like a CPR scenario. And so, you know, a lot of factors, but thank you for kind of explaining that for others. I think that's sometimes a little unclear, um, especially as you're kind of getting into the uh, emergency medicine, critical care world. Um, now we, we were talking about the other areas of controversy and I know I kind of interrupted you there. The, one of the first ones, you know, you were talking about the in hospital versus out of hospital. Um, is there, are there any other things that kind of stand out as maybe controversies or things that we hope to clarify? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, duration of 
Um, targeted temperature management is a big one. Um, we're actually a, a participating site for a large multi, um, multi-site study looking at that specific variable. Um, I think there are also things, you know, there's current investigation looking at like even intra-arrest TTM, right? So right, starting the process as soon as someone has the arrest. Um, and so I think like that, you know, the timing of starting it is something that also could um, be a factor. Um, you know, of course, we think earlier is better, um, but how early do we actually start with that? Um, you know, there have been studies looking at using, you know, cold fluids out in, in, in the field just kind of start the cooling process those haven't actually panned out but maybe there are other modalities of cooling that are going to be more effective and more useful um, for patients so i think there are a lot of areas of research still um, from our end i mean from a pharmacy centric perspective i think we have just kind of limitless amounts of areas of research in this um, because of all the pk pd changes um, the unique medications that we use for sort of unique indications Uh, so i think there's lots of opportunities um, for really optimizing what we do during the process of target temperature management. So how does, how does changing our kind of core body temperature and lowering that, what kind of effect does that have on our uh, PKPD? And, you know, you mentioned from a pharmacy kind of perspective, you know, what are things that we need to be aware of and maybe be a little more proactive about than maybe we would be in other scenarios just because of physiologically kind of what's happening to these patients. Yeah. I mean, from a PKPD standpoint, starting with that first, um, you know, essentially we get slowing of almost every enzymatic function um, as we deviate further and further away from core body temperature. And so what that does in terms of our medications is oftentimes decreases the metabolic elimination of them. Um, and that includes even things that are like non-organ independent, right? So our red blood cell esterases, our Hoffman degradation, even those processes slow. And so what we can expect is that, you know, medications that undergo, you know, enzyme elimination and these other metabolic pathways are going to have a longer duration of effect. And if they're pro-drugs, they might not get converted to those pro-drugs, et cetera. So there's a lot of pharmacokinetic considerations. Um, additionally, you know, we, we do have, even though it's a bit misleading because we see increased urine output, uh, we, we do get decreased like glomerular filtration um, that happens during target temperature management. And so you can expect medications that rely on glomerular filtration for elimination to accumulate. And, you know, I think vancomycin is one of our, our classic examples, and we sort, certainly see dosing that is very different during target temperature management than it might be in, in someone that's in the ICU that's not undergoing that process. Yeah, vancomycin and what sometimes feels like almost every other medicine that we use on some of these uh, sick patients gets a little bit reduced there, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it certainly does. And I always think it's kind of the, the cold diuresis, though, is it's so misleading. Um, and so, you know, Nikki Rook in Indiana, this right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So you're familiar with snow and winters. I always have to ask people where they're from before we start talking about this. But, you know, you remember when you're a child and you're, you know, that huge snowfall, you're rejoicing because you're no longer in school because it's a snow day yep. and you, you get on everything. You have your, your layers of clothes. You put on the plastic bags over your feet so they don't get wet. Put on your snow boots. As soon as you walk outside, 
you have to pee, right? You have to, you have to go. Inevitably. Right? Yep. Inevitably, right? And so you either have to make the decision, do I just go or do I go back inside and take all the stuff off? So I, we'll talk about what we decided <laughs> maybe later. Um, but I think like, you know, that's one of the things we see with our patients, right? We see increased urine output and, you know, there's mechanisms for that. We have kind of a decrease in antidiuretic hormone release. We have an increased venous return. Um, because of basic constriction, trying to keep core body temperature up. Um, but it, it can be super misleading because we'll see an increased urine output during um, the, the time we're actually actively cooling a patient. We might dose very aggressively with some antibiotic of, of some variety or medication of some variety, and then we see accumulation. And then if that contributes to things like ultramental status or other side effects, um, we could be putting our patients at risk and at harm for that. Well, because that's right. All of us know that the cranium lags behind. So us in the ICU, right? We, a lot of times we rely on that urine output. So if you're kind of unfamiliar, you kind of, you're, you're getting yourself up a Creek without a paddle in a sense, because the one variable that we thought we could rely on to see how our kidneys are, are doing is, um, flipped a little bit in when they're um, undergoing TTM. So we've, we've, touched a lot about the the active part of reducing kind of that temperature here kind of the cooling portion of it but if we're kind of let's kind of compare cooling and rewarming is one phase riskier or have a higher chance of of complications than another um yeah i mean i would say yes i would say that the cooling process um, in during the maintenance phase when patients are actively at their lowest temperature um, you see the largest sort of a breadth of complications. And those complications, you know, span from everything that we talked about thus far, um, PKPD changes. We also see some potential coagulopathy. Um, we, and uh, additionally, things like shivering, right? Um, the body's natural response to try to maintain temperature. Um, so sh shivering can be very counterproductive mm -hmm. um, for a patient that you're trying to actively cool. Um, arrhythmias tend to be more common in the cooling and maintenance phase. Um, but at the same time, as we start to rewarm those patients, uh, we do start to see kind of normalization of some of those complications we saw. But one of the biggest things is that you see systemic vasodilation. And, um, you know, if someone looked hemodynamically stable while they were cooled in the maintenance phase, they might very rapidly um, actually not be like that any longer. And I think, like, that's, that's something, again, anecdotally going back to my mother's case, right? She was... Um, not on vasopressors until we started rewarming. And then all of a sudden, you know, on norepi, norepi is escalating, adding vasopressin, right? And I think we, we knew what that story was going to end up being like. And so we had, you know, kind of a family meeting and, and kind of decided to, to make, take, you know, take the course a different route. But, um, but I think that's something to be very cognizant of because we had to then maintain those hemodynamics, make sure perfusion is getting to the organs that were just so severely malperfused during CPR and resuscitation. And that's where, you know, you mentioned the, the more advanced devices, you know, things like the brand name of the Arctic Sun um, and things like that. That's where when, you know, they control to the hour and probably to the minute how quickly your temperature is, or, is either going down or going up. And that's it's pretty important when um, if your temperature rapidly goes up, you can become so hemodynamically unstable. So that's where, yeah, the the hemodynamics is um, one of the riskier. I mean, it's all risky, right? When we're manipulating all this, all, all the body temperatures. But I think sometimes we we feel like, oh, they're not 
we're we're getting our temperature up. We're out of the woods. And it's like, well, almost not right. not a hundred percent yet. When we when we think of targeted temperature management, I think inherently, or at least for me, the side effect that that instantly comes to my mind is shivering. I think it's one of the first things that you know I kind of got talked about in when, when we think about this and as it relates to shivering. You know, one of kind of the, you know, the landmark papers in critical care is the Columbia Protocol that looked at and basically created this, you know, shivering protocol or pathway um, in terms of its management for for patients undergoing TTM here. So is this, should we still be, you know, using this kind of protocolized approach or should it be more of a of a patient specific approach and we, you know, people should be getting different medicines, you know, either for shivering prevention or treatment based on their specific factors. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, I'm a big patient specific person, um, mm. and, and pretty much everything. And I, I think it's hard to, to kind of have a brush stroke approach for anything that we do in critical ill. Um, but I do like this protocol and I like it because it, kind of gives a good starting place and has lots of different options that you could use depending on your individual patient. Um, I think one of the important questions to really consider um, before even like, you know, diving into like, yes, we're going to use this protocol or not is that, you know, the shivering response doesn't generally happen until you're about 34 and a half degrees. Mm -hmm. So in patients where you're targeting a temperature that's above that, you could very well actually not see shivering. And that was actually some of the, um, you know, the pro side of the pro con debate of why we might see patients at a higher temperature. Mm -hmm. Um, the, uh, I guess, you know, if you do see shivering or we're targeting temperatures that are lower, I think it makes a lot of sense to use a systematic approach, such as the protocol. Um, you know, if you look at the options that they have in there, things like, you know, starting off with schedule around the clock, acetaminophen or using magnesium, um, using something like dexmedetomidine or propofol, uh, a lot of those agents we're going to be using for other indications anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, if you're using it for another indication and it happens to help with your shivering, yes, it's great. It's a great fit, right? Because you're already using it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, depending on your goal, depending on how, what your institutional you know, process is to uh, achieve and sustain and maintain that goal, I think, you know, there could be very readily adaptations of this protocol to almost every institution. So I think one, one area that can complicate shivering is we don't necessarily have a test, right, to know that this is shivering. And I think another one of the biggest complications, like after a cardiac, of, a cardiac arrest event, is seizing. Um, so how... Let's take the temperature out of it just for a second. How can we differentiate like between the two kind of clinically? Yeah, and it's a great question. And I always um, refer back to one of my favorite titles of an article. This is an article of, um, it was in Epilepsy in 2010. It's called What's Shaking in the ICU? Wow, and, that's um, an absolutely amazing title. <laughs> I know. We, I mean, we, need more, we need more titles like that in, yeah. in pharmacy and medicine, you know. And, and so essentially they looked at patients that were on continuous EEG in the ICU and they looked at what happened to them clinically, what was on their differential diagnosis. And they basically found that um, of patients that looked like they were clinically seasoned, um, about 25% of those patients were actually just shivering. 
And, um, and so it, it happens. It happens very frequently. And so one of the things that our institution uses is actually the EEG technology, right? And, you know, we don't have enough um, EEG techs and machines to have it on every patient that's undergoing TTM. But I know that that is an institutional practice at other places. And I think it's a very appropriate one. Um, so what we tend to do is if we see any tremor-like movements, any, you know, myoclonic jerking, something that might look like seizing, we're very quick to get our neurology consultation um, in and our EEG set up for that individual patient. And that's where, you know, if you're at a smaller institution um, who maybe, you know, doesn't, because we're both at, right, big academic centers where, you know, we do have those things. And it is, that's what, you know, we'll routinely hook people up to those as well. But if you don't, one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, as you mentioned, Scott, the, you know, keeping it, okay, where, what is their temperature? When should they typically be shivering? All right, they're only at 36 and a half now. How confident are we that this is shivering? And that can kind of almost be like a, you know, a, a help you, you know, like a decision support tool in a sense to try to figure out, you know, what's kind of happening if you don't have access to the, to the other um, more advanced technologies. Yeah, absolutely. So what I want to kind of do here for, for a little bit is, you know, I think there's some, some pharmacologic kind of considerations when we think about TTM here. So let's kind of do some rapid fire questions to kind of answer some of these kind of more pharmacy specific questions that, that may, that may come up. Um, and you know, one thing that's, um, especially when I was a, when I was a resident that I was, was always fascinating to me was, you know, typically one of the indications for undergoing targeted temperature management after you get ROSC from a cardiac event is, right, having no neurologic, like you're not responding to commands, you have a low GCS. So why do a lot of these patients get sedation, either intermittent or continuous, if they may, like they may not be doing anything? Like, do we have the same sedation goals in these patients as we do for, you know, more of our standard ICU players on the ventilator? Yeah, it's an excellent question, and it's something that comes up quite a bit as well. You know, like in a comatose patient uh, with a rash of minus five, uh, what do you titrate your sedation to? Um, and I think like one of the things that's uh, a little bit different um, um, is sort of the indication for sedation, right? So essentially, what we're using the sedation for for these patients is to um, limit their ability to wake up, which will counteract the targeted temperature management, and so. Um, you know, as a sort of added benefit, we also have, you know, that these agents have contribution into preventing shivering as well. So we, we use sort of the ideas um, of those two concepts to allow us to use sedation. Now, what we do at our institution is we oftentimes will pick a sedative dose um, and we will just sustain that. And we'll, as long as they're hemodynamically stable and not having the adverse effects that can be associated with the sedative, um, we'll just keep them at that sedation. Um, and we found, you know, some success with that. Um, you know, there might be other protocols that might titrate to any kind of uh, non-purposeful movement. I think that would be something else that's reasonable. But essentially, what we don't want the patient to do is to be active, which could counteract the target temperature management. So now, switching gears from kind of our our sedation here to more of our anticoagulation and specifically you know let's will i'm 
speaking more about therapeutic anticoagulation here than our standard kind of prophylaxis, but people who have an indication for empiric anticoagulation, whether it's a, you know, a new or maybe not new, but, you know, an existing PE or, you know, you, they, they're, they have known AFib and they're an AFib with RVR now or things like that. How do you, how do we approach empiric anticoagulation knowing like you said one of our one of our biggest complications especially at the lower temperatures is coagulopathy yeah so i, I think you approach it gingerly um <laughs> you know we we do, we do know that these patients will have uh, indications for it as you just described right and and if you think of cardiac arrest right and or STEMI, mm-hmm. um you know you gain another indication for having full anticoagulation um but we also know that these patients are hypo, hypocoagulable, right? And so there, if you know, there are studies looking at this, and there's a pretty nice study in resuscitation in 2014 that looked at, you know, the use of heparin in patients that are undergoing TTM, and found that um, upwards of 80, it was like close to 90% of patients had a supra therapeutic PTP when they were on heparin at normal doses during TTM, and as soon as they were rewarmed, that those PTPs went back to normal. So I think if you're going to do it, I think it has to be done probably off of your standard protocol. Um, so I don't think a standard protocol would be appropriate. We have nursing-driven protocols. And so what we do during target temperature management is that we actually flip them from a nurse-driven protocol to an MD-driven protocol um, because what we've seen uh, with this anecdotal experience and then the literature that's out there. Yeah, this is this is definitely one where holding that initial bolus is probably a good idea if you're starting that uh that heparin drip um yes nur- nursing nursing uh does it here i came from a, a smaller hospital where um due to i think some errors uh, us pharmacists actually adjusted the heparin infusions and i never want to do that again i i love my <laughs> nursing colleagues and i'm very happy that they do it <laughs> i bet you they do it better than we did anyway <laughs> <laughs> Now, um, kind of going to the antimicrobial section, because I think inherently, right, these patients are sick. Now, you can't argue that. Sometimes they're the sickest, generally the sickest people in the unit. So should all these patients get empiric antibiotics? How do we do that? Because, you know, obviously one of the biggest signs that someone's, you know, having um, some sort of, you know, acute infection or something like that is, is a fever. And we're obviously suppressing that. So should we do, should everyone get antibiotics? Should we be looking at other factors? Um, and, and if, if patients do need antibiotics, how broad are we going? I mean, obviously, you know, vancosin is, I think every hospital is probably number one and two use drug. Are we going down that route? Can we go more of like a cap coverage? Yeah. So I, it's a great question. And if you would have asked me this question three years ago, I would have probably tried to give you a hard no. We do not need antibiotics for these patients. Um, I think, again, it depends on the patient, right? So if you're thinking of your typical out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, where we know three-fourths of those patients are due to cardiac-related issues, mostly related to MIs leading to your shockable rhythm, I would say those patients generally don't necessarily need antibiotics. Um, if you flip that and you're in an in-hospital cardiac arrest setting and all of these patients are in PEA and asystole, which could be due from lactic acidemia, which certainly could be from septic shock, then I think you have to go down that pathway and you need antibiotics. Um, there's a fairly large 
study, uh, again, not like the 1900 study of, of we just talked about with TTM2, but this was a, a decent-sized study of 200 patients in New England Journal. This was published in 2019, and they looked at the use of empiric augmentin, um, amoxicillin, clavulante, right, um, in patients that had out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And interestingly, you know, they didn't change overall outcomes in patients, but they found that patients had less incidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia, and they less frequently developed sepsis. And so it's a tough question, right? Do you want your patients to have ventilator-associated pneumonia and sepsis? And I think most of us would say, no, we absolutely don't want that for our patients. But the other pure, you know, the purest side in me says, well, it didn't change outcome anyway. So if, if they develop sepsis and they're going to, you know, pass anyway, it doesn't matter. So I don't know. I think there's debate. Um, we, we are an institution that uh, if there's any other signs of infection, um, elevated white count, um, heart rate that's elevated. I know the serious criteria, right? That's kind of taboo now, but we still talk about those. Yeah. Um, so if we, we do pull a trigger early and usually we'll use something like unison, um, oftentimes we mm-hmm. even just do like a, a monotherapy with those and something like that. I was just so glad that that study did use like well augmentin, but basically unison. What we, you know, we do that IV as well. And I'm just so glad they didn't do something like Zosin, which I, I kind of was expecting to do. Um, yeah, mirror penum tag yeah. cycling, you know. <laughs> yeah. But it sounds like it sounds like what you all do is is pretty similar to ours. Is you know excluding the lactate because obviously when they've been down, their lactate of course is going to be up. But all those other numbers that you that you mentioned, if there's any other, or maybe they have a little a little blip on the right side on their chest X-ray, yeah, they'll get some unison. Which you know, I guess out of all the battles that we fight, if we're going to do a little unison for somebody, and you know, I feel like that's you know. There, there have been uh, worse things that happened. That's right. And so it goes on short as you can. So. <laughs> so do we need to avoid any specific routes of administration? And obviously, like a lot of these, a lot of the meds they're going to be getting are, are IV. And if they're really sick on a lot of drips, right, then, then we'll probably do that. But what about, you know, not everybody is hemodynamically unstable if they're undergoing TTM. So are there general routes we need to avoid in these patients? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's pretty good debate about enteral administration and you get some pretty passionate people on both sides of whether or not um, patients will absorb um, medications enterally and or feeding. Um, You know, there, there are studies that suggest that there are patients that have greater residual volume, um, during TTM than not, um, but there's also studies that say you shouldn't check residual volume. So um, <laughs> I, in terms of enteral, I'm okay with the enteral route for most patients. If you have a patient that's on, you know, three and a half, four pressors, um, then, then maybe you could consider something else. Um, I think the biggest one is probably from the subcutaneous tissue. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're going to be shunting blood um, away from, right, away from the skin and trying to maintain blood flow in the core. And so, Subcutaneous administration is probably going to be absorbed um, poorly. Um, again, I don't have a great study to quote for that, but I, I think it just kind of makes some intuitive sense. Um, and then, you know, other folks would suggest that IM might be another route that you would consider if you had the option to do IV, maybe stick with something IV. So is that one where will you avoid doing any type of sub-Q injections in that beginning period or do you just 
know, hey, I see anoxaparin 40 milligrams, they might not be getting that whole 40. I'm just going to keep that in mind. It, what kind of, what way do you, do you go to, with these patients? Yeah, so typically I, I will err on the side of I'm just going to keep that in mind um, because we, we know, and you know, this is just from seeing published study after published study, that there are people that are using subcutaneous routes and not everyone's developing DBT. And it's sure it could be it could be a coincidental, right? That they happen to not get a DVT, and you know it has nothing to do with the anoxaparin or heparin <laughs> that we were giving them, anyways. Um, or it could be that there is still some maintained efficacy, um, and it's just maybe not the exact absorption that we would see in a patient that otherwise isn't getting PCM. And okay, I got my my last rapid fire here because there, I mean, there's just so many questions. Like you said, we could we could talk forever about this stuff. But what is our, do we have specific hemodynamic goals for patients either post-cardiac arrest or undergoing targeted temperature management outside of our classic indications, right? If they had a stroke, if they had a head bleed, things that we know are pressure goals for, but for kind of more of the, the all comers, we maybe still don't know why this happened. Do they have specific goals? So there are specific goals mentioned in the guidelines. Um, the derivation of those goals is not based off of, of really strong evidence. It's based off of essentially extrapolation from other patient groups. Um, and so you'll see math goals of 65. Um, you'll see occasionally a systolic goal greater than 90. Um, you know, maintaining kind of, you know, a normal heart rate, uh, things like maintaining oxygen saturation, and then that's been changing over COVID. So I think we're all re-reviewing what goal oxygen saturation seems to be anyways. Um, and then there are things like PCO2 goals as well. But again, it's extrapolated from patients that are um, kind of outside the cardiac arrest population. Um, but we do know that we need to maintain perfusion to these organs, right? Um, the hard part is no one comes in with a label that says, oh, I need a map of this for my kidney function, or I need a map of this for my brain to work. Um, so I think it, you know, we kind of err on, on the side of looking at patients, um, you know, all the same. But I think, again, if you have a hypertensive patient, perhaps you should be shooting for a little bit higher goal. If you have a patient that has history of cirrhosis, maybe they don't meet quite as an, an aggressive hemodynamic goal. And again, that those would be extrapolations from other data sets as well. So there's tons to consider when we're, when we're thinking about, you know, making sure these patients get the best care possible. And I think one thing that, that I know I'm, I'm learning and it sounds like you're probably involved in, in some way is how are we able to either kind of protocolize this electronically or put a lot of this information that you just talked about into like an order, like an electronic order set or whatever your EHR would call it. Like in something this complicated and has this moving this many moving parts, how are we able to kind of put it in our real world EHR? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Honestly, it's something that we've seen evolve. We've changed uh, electronic medical record systems over the past year or so, and so we're all trying to figure out just where information is. Um, but wow, what during we have COVID, found- that's like that's like trying that's like trying to play the game on Madden level. You're switching EHRs <laughs> in the middle of, of COVID. Oh my gosh, I, I had no idea. Yeah. I hope you're not a super yeah. user or, or whatever the big um, the experts are. <laughs> yeah, I kind of wish I were, I, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I'm still lost in it. But 
you know, I think what we did is that we had um, a guideline uh, outside of our electronic you know, health record. And it went through basically all the different, it goes through all the different systems um, that could be affected during target temperature management and what happens to them during cooling, during maintenance, and then during rewarming. And, and what we have done since then is that we basically have taken um, individual pharma, you know, pharmacy specific and nursing centric orders. And we have made order panels that align with those different phases. So, um, you know, it's not a perfect thing because, you know, the patients obviously will be individualized, but at least it gives our providers a sense from a guideline of what's going to happen during this period of time and what are the orders that you're likely going to need in that period of time. And then that moves as the patient progresses. Yeah. Multidisciplinary, right? Getting all the possibly affected parties together and be sure that they kind of agree with what should maybe be what should be in there, what should be pre-checked, what should be on the list for consideration and kind of working together with, with the, the entire team. Is that, it, it, am I hearing you correctly there? Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, yeah, physicians, nursing, RT, um, our IT folks, everyone that you can imagine, we're all on this, in this together. And it's been fun. It takes time <laughs> and it takes a lot of time, but um, I think the product's been very, um, effective and operational, I think, which is something we're really going forward with. Well, Scott, I really, I really appreciate your time coming on today and kind of talking to us about, you know, all these, these great, um, points with something so nuanced as, as targeted temperature management. So if you, if you had to say that if maybe there's just a couple kind of high level takeaways or things, Hey, if you remember two things from this, um, kind of talk, what would, what would be some of the biggest points that maybe we want to reiterate to some people? Um, I mean, I think first would be that, you know, the, there's an evolution of temperature goals and, you know, as evidence is coming out, I think we need to kind of strongly reconsider what we're doing and kind of the why behind it. Um, and it, I think there's consistent signaling, even from the older uh, studies that, you know, really avoiding, um, patients being hyperthermic is, is kind of the ultimate goal. And then I think, you know, maybe there's going to be more nuance in terms of figuring out what the exact goal temperature duration uh, and things like that would be in the future. I think the second would be just to understand the physiologic changes that happen um, during the target temperature process and also the impact that that has on us as pharmacists. Um, I think, you know, again, not to reiterate everything we just talked about, but there are obviously multiple system level things that um, that change and things that we need to consider and ways that we can um, address those, whether it's the protocols or just having the right people looking at these patients at the right time um, and those types of things as well. So those would be the two major takeaways I'd, I'd put out there. So the last thing I want to do on the episode is kind of give you the floor because you're, you live in Chicago or at least you work in Chicago. You probably live around. Um, I'm, I doubt you're doing a two and a half hour commute every day. Although, depending on when you leave, it may feel like that. Um, explain to the listeners who maybe don't know why is summertime in and around Chicago the best, or is that just me? Is that just a feeling that I have that I love <laughs> Chicago in the summer? Oh, uh, Chicago in the summer is a great place, you know. And I, it's it's funny because I, I don't think you appreciate Chicago summer until you go through a Chicago winter. 
And um, after after a Chicago winter with you know thirty feet of snow and you know all of January and half of February being in the negative digits, it's like Chicago summer is amazing. Um, the beach, you have the beachfront, and I know people scoff in the you know from like real beaches are like okay, it's a, it's a lake, but it feels like a beach. Um, it absolutely feels like a beach. Yeah, they're it just feels like a beach, right? I mean, you know, haters are going to hate. So, um, you know, you, you have, so there's a Chicago river walk. It's open restaurants. There's all different types of uh, options for things like boating, uh, air and water show. I mean, the list kind of goes on and on. I mean, it's, it, it's interesting, right? It's COVID still, but like my wife and I, we, you know, we're, we're hitting restaurants because we can sit outside and that's just all kinds of people out. And so it's great. It's, Chicago is a great place in uh, in the summertime. It's a great place all the time. Um, you know, a virtual conference um, in Chicago. I don't know what that even means, but uh, you know, hopefully in the future, you know, people will be back in person, and we'll we'll get to see everyone and enjoy Chicago summer together. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because another another reminder for everybody: the C four conference. It is this Saturday, Saturday, August twenty eighth. So uh, be sure to to get your your registrations in because there are just incredible speakers, um, lots of great, very relevant topics. So if you if you want more information, it is c the number four c four conference dot uic dot edu. Now, Scott is old school here and isn't on social media, which to be honest, good for you for the record. I think I think all of us could could use a break from it. But if the listeners kind of want to get in touch with you or things, what might be the best way to do that? Uh, so the easiest way would just be just email. Um, my last name, B-E-N-K-E-N at UIC.edu. Um, I guess I was the first Benkin and, you know, <laughs> besides my wife, maybe the last uh, UIC. So... Um, but yeah, Benkin at UIC.edu. And I'd love to, you know, hear from anyone that has questions, just comments, discussion, and anything. It'd be great. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Scott. I, I appreciate your time and expertise and thank you for so much you've done, you know, for, for all of, for all of us, especially in the Midwest, but everywhere with the, with the C4 conference. I know it's something that I've seen and, and, um, been to at least once um, earlier in one of the earlier iterations. So I love that it's still going and just, you know, awesome job. Kudos to everyone um, for all that hard work. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. All right. Now for the listeners, remember I'm always open to feedback, either positive or negative, plus some guests or topic ideas. So if you want to reach out, Twitter at pharmacy to dose, TO to dose, or via email at pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. So reference list is going to be in this episode, but we're going to try um, uh, probably no show notes for this one and maybe for a few kind of coming up in the future, um, just a way to kind of offload some work during some of these this hard times. So if you have a big problem with it, reach out, let me know, and we'll come up with some things. But for now, we'll just have um, some reference lists in the episode description and website. And so until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast.